Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. My name is Paul Ollinger. I hope you are having a great day. I am. I'm very excited to bring you this week's episode. Richard Reeves is author of a book named Dream Hoarders, which I read a couple of years ago, and it blew my mind in a most uncomfortable way. And if you're upper middle class or above, as you very well may be, or on your way to being, you may not enjoy the conclusions of today's conversation. In fact, my guest says that his research ruins dinner parties with many of his affluent friends. Why? Because he studies how the upper middle class keeps all the societal goodies to themselves and doesn't share with the other kids. It's something we don't like to talk about. It's We all want to believe the United States is a meritocracy and that we all earned our success. I mean, I did. I studied hard. I, you know, I stayed up late as a kid. Clearly, I earned my success. Politico magazine named Richard Reeves one of the top 50 thinkers in the United States. He is a fellow at the Brookings Institution where he directs the Future of the Middle Class Initiative and co-directs the Center on Children and Families. His research focuses on middle class inequality and social mobility. His writing has appeared basically everywhere. New York Times, Guardian, National Affairs, The Atlantic, and The Wall Street Journal. His book, Dream Hoarders, was named a book of the year by The Economist and a political book of the year by The Observer. Richard is a British American. He was director of strategy to the UK's deputy prime minister from 2010 to 2012 and has a very long list of prestigious past titles in and out of the private sector and the public sector. He's a former European business speaker of the year and has a BA from Oxford University and a PhD from Warwick University. I thoroughly enjoyed Dream Hoarders. In fact, I had recommended this book to several other people because I thought it was an interesting commentary on how the world works. And I'm doing this podcast to try to become smarter about how to be a human being, how to be a good human being, and how to understand the world. Sometimes arriving at that knowledge comes about by traveling an uncomfortable path. And sometimes we got to look at the way things really are, and we're not always going to like what we see. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I must say that even though Dream Hoarders made me uncomfortable, it really made me think, and that's a good thing. Richard's ideas are worthy of your time, especially since they might just be accurate and true. Please enjoy this conversation with Richard Reeves. I actually wrote a separate piece where I lamented the plight of the net jet poor. These are the people who were so poor that they didn't have their own jet. They had to share a jet using net jets. And, and actually for those people, if you only ever look up, you'll always feel poor, right? And so it's kind of, it's basically, but if, but if they seem like they're in the stratosphere, that probably makes you even angry. And the danger with that is it kind of doesn't make you attentive enough to your own position. And if you just spend a little bit of time looking down, maybe you feel differently. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Richard Reeves, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you for having me. I read your book, Dream Hoarders, a long time ago, and it was quite provocative. For those of our listeners who haven't read it yet, could you please summarize the thesis and conclusions of your book? What I argue is that the inequality problem in America is a a class problem. And I mean that in two ways. Firstly, this is not just about a tiny sliver at the top of the income distribution. It's not just the top 1%. It's a much broader group than that. It's the the top 20%. 
of the population. I call them the upper middle class. We can argue about definitions if you like, but it's the people who are kind of comfortably into six figures, probably four-year college degrees, and their incomes have been rising um, pretty well over the last couple of decades. When I say they, I mean us. I mean we, typically, because almost everybody talking about this, arguing about it, is in that category, that top kind of 20%. So that's number one. And then number two is that there are various ways in which that group, the American upper middle class, are hoarding opportunities. They've become, to use the title of dream hoarders. Um, and they're doing that in a couple of ways, one of which is through straightforward opportunity hoarding, which is by rigging certain markets or policies in their favor, like higher education admissions, housing, internships, etc. And the other is uh, through what I call market meritocracy. And that's by just ensuring that if you're going to have a market-driven society that's rewarding skills, that you just invest very, very, very heavily in your own kids' skills so that they will almost automatically do better. And both of those forces and lead to growing inequality, not just now, but tomorrow. And you're seeing this increased intergenerational inequality where poverty and affluence and education are handed down generation to generation. And that's what you call a class-bound society. So the upper middle class, that's the, the top 20%. And you make a distinction between not lumping the, the 1%, the evil 1% into the top 20%. Can you tell us why you did that? Well, because I think the debate about inequality has become dominated by this, we are the 99%, it's just the top 1% who are the problem. I do not want to say that there isn't an issue with the top 1% who are kind of pulling away even more, more quickly than the top 20%. But by definition, the top 1% is only a small fraction of the population. In fact, I'm going to confidently say that it's one in 100. Uh, and so you're not talking about a huge swath of society, and you're not talking about a group that can massively affect education markets or housing markets or who run everything. And to get to the top 1% now, you need a household income of close to half a million, depending on your household size. And so these are clearly people with kind of lots of money, they are doing very well, etc. But the reason I wanted to interrupt that was because they are not just the only ones who are pulling away from the rest of society. Even those of us who are somewhat further down the distribution uh, are still doing pretty well. The median income of the 19% below is about $200,000 a year and rising, rising reasonably well, unlike that for those below. And it's a little bit convenient for those of us who are in that kind of group below to just point our fingers up and just say, it's just them, it's just the nasty 1%. I tell you what, especially if they went to college with us, they're the ones that really piss us off because like, hold on, I was at college, how come we're so rich? And so you get this kind of incredible class warfare between the kind of really rich and the merely rich. And that's, um, and I wanted to puncture that because I just think it's too self-serving for those of us who are just doing really well to just be only angry at the people doing really, really, really well. So do you think that's exacerbated by the fact that, that the 1% is so incredibly steep, that curve is so incredibly steep that I can look at somebody who is 1% ahead of me on the curve but lives a completely different lifestyle, you know, I'm not the problem, I don't have a jet kind of thing. Yeah. Does that exacerbate the problem? Yeah, I think it does because um, you get this kind of the structure, it, it, the tail just shoots up on the right-hand side. And of course, all the charts that show you that have to have a very, very specific left-hand axis, right? To capture the top 1%, you've got to push the left-hand axis up to what, $2 million or something, which has the effect of flattening all the rest of our incomes kind of way down. And so sometimes it's almost like a sort of visual artifact, right? But but I think you're also right is that as they're pulling away, the distance does become greater. And in fact, there's I've, um, I, I've written about the fact that even within the top 1%, you'll then get inequality within them. So they're envious of the top 0.1%, who in turn are envious of the point zero. It basically never ends. I actually wrote a separate piece where I lamented the plight of the net jet poor. These are the people <laughs> who were so poor that they didn't have their own jet, they had to share a jet using net jets. And, and actually for those people, if you only ever look up, 
you'll always feel poor, right? And so it's kind of, it's basically, but if, but if they seem like they're in the stratosphere, that probably makes you even angry. And the danger with that is it kind of doesn't make you attentive enough to your own position. And if you just spend a little bit of time looking down, maybe you feel differently. But isn't that the condition of all of us, no matter where we are, that we look to the right on the curve and think, gee, if I only had twice what I had, or if I had what my neighbor has, I'd be happier. And of course, that's a fallacy. Yeah, I do think to some extent this is human nature and we should, shouldn't be you know, idealistic about changing human nature. Uh, I think you know, policy shouldn't be based on uh, the frailties of, of human nature. So I think that's true. And in fact, someone did a study once where they basically asked people how much money would it take to, for you to be happy? And everybody said twice as much as they had at that moment in time. But that was true for everybody. It didn't, it didn't matter whether they were on the income distribution, they needed roughly twice as much as they had then because it's never, never quite enough. So yeah, you're right. Our, our heads sort of literally do sort of pull right. They pull to that sort of distribution. And look, that could be quite a good thing. It could be aspiration that makes you move up. But if it generates envy, it generates resentment that's one problem but the deeper problem i think is that it has managed it's allowed many americans who are doing very well by any sensible metric to convince themselves that they're just hard-working members of the american middle class and that's just empirically not true and morally very troubling so let's discuss this rigid class structure that you describe let's start by defining what you mean by class mobility well, what I mean by that is intergenerational stickiness, effectively. My view is, so these terms are used very loosely. So when we talk about income inequality, are we talking about class? Well, I think if everyone switched positions every year on the income distribution, you wouldn't say we had a class society. I think it's the degree to which that sticks over time. And I would say more specifically that class implies something that is passed on. I think there's an intergenerational a sense in which we use the term class, which is that you're able to kind of pass it on uh, and, you have, and you aspire to pass it on to some extent. Now, look, I don't want to oversimplify that. You can always, obviously there are elements of being middle class or upper class and so on that might be more, more straightforwardly in the moment, but to, the kind of class stratification I'm interested in requires time. You know, you don't create a class in a year. It takes a generation. So let me put my Milton Friedman hat on for just a second and uh, advocate the position that what matters less is relative affluence and what matters more should be absolute affluence. Debunk that point of view for me. Well, I'm not sure I'll debunk it, but I'll make the, op- I'll make the counter argument and then probably most people will end up somewhere in the middle. So you can imagine a society where everybody is getting better off in absolute terms, everyone's getting richer, but everybody also occupies exactly the same rung of the economic ladder that their parents did before them and their grandparents did before them. What kind of society would that be? Well, society is getting richer, but it's completely immobile. And even the, the most talented and hard-working kid born at the bottom stays at the bottom. Admittedly, the bottom's higher than it was. The middle's higher than it was. On the other extreme, you can have a kind of society where there isn't any increase in absolute growth. Everyone's just as poor today as they were a century ago, but everyone's changing places completely every generation. You probably wouldn't want that either, because then you've got a zero-sum you know, competition for resources that aren't changing. And so I do think you need to be able to do both. But the problem is that right now, the, the debate about growth is basically only focused on absolute. And the avoidance of the relative point, again, is a bit self-interested, because the problem with relative mobility is it's a zero-sum game. There's only so many rungs at the top. I'll, I'll say this again. You can only get 1% of the population in the top 1%, and you can only get 20% of the population in the top 20%. That means for someone to go up, someone has to come down in relative terms. And that's a conversation that people just don't want to have. And when I discover that there's a conversation people don't want to have, I tend to want to have it because it means there's probably something, there's probably something at stake there. And 
the honest answer is, of course, we probably want a little bit of both, right? You're not the, the, the kind of world that would have perfect relative mobility would would be very imperfect. It would be horrific, totalitarian nightmare. Almost certainly, you'd be taking children from their parents and forcing people into jobs. And but also, I think a world where even if we're getting richer, your status is determined by your birth. That's a pretty horrific world as well. Maybe not quite as bad, but but all we need to do is rebalance the debate. So I can hear by your accent that you're not American by birth. People think about the UK as having a very static class structure. Is that is that actually true relative to the United States? Well, I think it depends where you look. First of all, I'm very disappointed that um, you can still tell that uh, I'm not American. <laughs> I, 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 I really thought I'd nailed the accent, but apparently not. Um, have you been to Have you been to a Waffle House yet? I have. I have been to Waffle House. Nice. Okay. It's very nice. I've, I've lived here for six years, and my, my wife's American. My kids are half and half. So, um, but clearly, yeah, it's still you, you rumbled me, and, and actually, it's part. It's part. Of my, it's, it's part of the motivation, frankly, because in some ways, you think of the UK as a very class-bound society, Downton Abbey, the Queen, the still got the Lords, and all, and all that stuff. Um, and of course, all that's true. But actually, if you look at more broadly economic mobility and the chances of people kind of moving across the income distribution between generations, it's actually a little bit higher in the UK than, than it is in the US. And that seems to be especially true at the top. And so this top 20% in the US pass on their status a bit more effectively in the US than in the UK. And so what one of the things that I, I, grew, I grew up hating the British class system. I hated how dominant class was and people constantly thinking, what class are you, what class are you, this snobbery, inverse snobbery, and how great to come to a country where everyone wears baseball hats and we're all basically equal. Well, it turns out they're really not, and that actually the, the mechanisms of class reproduction in the US are just a bit better camouflaged than in the UK. Um, there's a kind of veneer of classlessness that sort of disguises the class machine. But let me tell you, it is every bit as ruthless in the US as it is in the UK. So let's talk about some of the factors that lead to this, this class structure that we have here. You have a quote in the book from Adam Swift that says, what one's parents are like is entirely a matter of luck. What one's children are like is not. What impact does parenthood and marriage have on this class structure that we have? Well, the class gap in family structure is wide and growing. And it's interesting that now you're seeing marriage is strongest at the top of the distribution. It used to be the case that middle-class Americans actually were more likely to be married than those at the top. That's now reversed. And so actually marriage is not, not, marriage is not declining at all among college-educated Americans or in, among those in the top 20%. It is declining for other Americans. And so the question then is like, what does marriage matter? And it turns out that marriage matters mostly as an expression of you've planned your kids, you've decided to have the kids together, you're ready to have kids, you're committed to the idea of raising your kids together. And so it's a kind of signal of parenting commitment uh, and this kind of long-termism. And so what that means is that the skills that kids develop, the kind of environment they grow up in, is much more conducive to them able to kind of learn and develop. And that there's, there's nobody across the political spectrum that doesn't think family stability isn't important. And to the extent that you provide that through certain institutions, that matters too. And so that just, add, that in a sense, that's one of the factors that contributes to this intergenerational inequality. And that's not to say anything bad about it, quite the opposite. Obviously, you know, these parents um, are doing the right thing by trying to provide this kind of stability for their kids. But the implication of it for the kid, who, again, going back to Swift, doesn't choose their parents, it is profound because it means that if you just make, if you, if you, the dice rolls the wrong number for you and you end up in a different family, then your chances of developing those skills are much less. And there's nothing inherently fair about that. One might argue that staying married is a benefit that's available to anyone. 
if a faithful marriage is arguably available to anyone, what are the factors that create lower long-term family structures in the bottom 80%? Well, I agree with you that it is, it is available to everyone. And I think that the push towards intentional, committed, and engaged parenting is for everybody. And I don't think we, that there should be any embarrassment about saying it is better to be an engaged parent. It is better to be committed parents. It is better to spend time with your kids. And it's better to try and provide a stable environment for them. I think to claim otherwise is to fly in the face of the evidence. So then the question is like, well, what's changed? What, what's changing? What's making apparently making it harder for some Americans, middle class and poor Americans to kind of create those stable family environments? And here I think the economics and the social factors kind of you know, reinforce each other. Because if you don't feel economically secure, then you're much less likely to be kind of making those, those committed relationships with um, kids. If men in particular have seen their wages dropping and, and men still have an expectation of being able to earn a certain amount of money and women may have it of them, then that will undermine marriage as well. And in the meantime, you're still seeing people having relationships because people want to have relationships and people want to have sex. Um, and then what's happening then is that sometimes the result of unintended pregnancy is that you have a, have a child that you're necessarily ready for uh, you try and make a go of it, but it doesn't necessarily work out. And so you get much more turbulence. And so what I'd say is that economic volatility and uh, social volatility, economic security and social security, they, they do kind of interact with each other. And basically the conservatives are happy talking about families and marriage and commitment. And the liberals are quite happy talking about low wages and cycles of poverty and so on. And But ordinary people are well aware that both of those things matter and that they interact with each other. Can you tell me more about the concept of a sort of mating and how that perpetuates, how that creates a glass floor for those families at the top of the scale? So it's one of the least romantic phrases in sociology. <laughs> it's, it's the phrase assortative mating. And I'll just say to anybody listening, don't use it on your online dating profile. Don't say, uh, you know, Prin Princeton grad seeking to assortatively mate with similar Ivy League uh, educators. You know, even if that is what you're doing, just don't say it. And certainly don't use the phrase assortative mating. It's just a, it's a real buzzkill. Uh, a, <laughs> I think it's a great pickup line. Your freshman yeah. year in college, you meet some attractive person and say, how'd you like to engage in some assortative mating? I'm sure there are some sociology majors who are using that line as we, as we speak in a bar That's somewhere. That is long-term thinking, you know? <laughs> and what, it, what it refers to, this unromantic phrase, is the tendency of people to marry someone like themselves. And what it, what it used to mean more of is someone who actually more of a similar race or similar religion. What it's come to mean more, actually, is someone of a similar educational background. And one of the consequences of the huge increase in women's education, uh, numerically and qualifications, has been to allow for much more matching at similar levels of education. And so you're seeing kind of those four-year college degrees or more tending to end up with those at similar levels of education. And what that means is that you've got these families that can double down on the advantages of having a four-year college degree. I mean, just bear in mind that the only men in the economy to have seen an increase in their wages in recent decades are men with a four-year college degree. Women right. with a four-year college degree have seen, even, have seen an even bigger rise, but that, they're the only men. And so you then put those men and women together in the same household, and what it means is you're effectively doubling down on their wage advantage. And so, well, may I let's think about inequalities as a combination of uh, wages and wives. So you're seeing increased earnings inequality within educational categories, but then if the women who've got those educational categories marry the men, then at a household level, the income gap grows even further. And so the ten that tendency to marry like with like by education levels is actually exacerbating inequality. 
And you're creating these financially just very strong households that can provide every economic advantage for their children. Thus, the cycle repeats itself. Yeah, that's right. And also, it means that they get more choice. And so one of the most interesting findings recently is that women with four-year college degrees actually go back to work a little bit more slowly than those with less education after their first child, which doesn't make any economic sense at all. Economically, the textbooks would tell you they should go back to work faster because the, the loss of earnings is greater. But actually, they want to invest more time with their kids. And it's true of some men, too, as well. But because, and why? And that's because they think that investing time in their kids, engaging with their kids, especially in the early years, is really important for their kids' outcomes. And guess what? They're right. They've read the memos. They're reading all these Brookings reports on how important parenting in early years, at least. I hope this is what's happening. Yes. Um, but so they, they sort of, they, you know, they've read the memo about the importance of parenting, and they're doing a lot more of it, and they have the economic resources to do that. So along those lines, I have a pre-recorded question from my eight-year-old daughter who wanted to chime in and know where she sits in this whole thing. So this is Izzy Van Ollinger. Dr. Reeves, should I be penalized just because I have awesome parents? That's a great question. Should I be penalized for having such awesome parents? Well, first of all, congratulations on being awesome parents. And can I I tell you that my, my, my kids are somewhat older than yours, and it's a long time since I've heard a sentence like that from the lips of my own children. So it's, it's, it's heartwarming. <laughs> Trust me, it doesn't last. She read the script, and the bloopers will be at the end of this episode after the credits. So... <laughs> So uh, the answer is, the, is that no, if you have awesome parents, then that makes you very, very lucky indeed. As, as it happens, I had awesome parents as well. And I think that it's one of the reasons that I've been able to make my own way through the world and gotten where I am. I think that a huge amount of credit is to the kind of parents that I have. And so it's a great gift that you have um, the kinds of parents you have. But although it's hard for you to hear this at the age of eight, you didn't do anything to deserve them. They take a lot of credit for the way they're raising you, but you yourself just got lucky in the lottery of life to be born to such great parents. And, and so you should say, you should be glad of it. You should seize the advantages that having great parents have. And most importantly, you should look after them in old age. <laughs> they're not getting any younger. He has a PhD from Oxford, sweetheart. <laughs> so, listen to, but, right. uh, but don't make the mistake of thinking that it's your merit that somehow you deserve the advantages you got from having awesome parents. You are welcome to them and they're a great gift, but you didn't deserve them. In the same way, someone who, who rolled a different number on the dice and ended up with, with parents who are less awesome for one reason or another and therefore really struggled, didn't deserve that either. And so if you end up slightly ahead of that person uh, in school or somewhere else, don't think it's because you are better just recognize that actually everybody has, has draws a different straw and try to recognize that and try to support the kinds of things that will help that other child who is a bit less lucky than you. Okay, she wants to say thank you now. Thank you for your answer. I have to go now. The nanny is taking me to my SAT prep class. <laughs> it's too late. She's already eight, man. I mean, you're start a fire. Sorry. Well, yeah, sorry. She's been working on her Mandarin in judo. But, but so... This is clearly all in fun, but this is, you know, this is the topic du jour, right? And college is the point where all these issues become crystallized and just kind of writ large, especially in a world where we have celebrities being busted for bribes to get their kids into college. Now, I personally look at that and go, well, that's, that's an insane person just caught up in some crazy, you know, hothouse behavior, but, and that's not representative 
but it's just sort of the nth degree of what we all do on a day-to-day basis as parents to give our kids advantages. Yeah, I mean, I think the the Operation Varsity Blues sting that caught all these celebrities in the college admissions scandal revealed something very interesting. It was the lengths that parents will go to to play this game. And they clearly crossed the line. They actually crossed the line, which is defined by the law. So what they ended up doing was illegal. But my view is that what they did was only different in degree rather than in kind from what other parents do. Okay, so the difference between that and you know, donating your way in, pulling some strings so that because you happen to know somebody, to being able to kind of use your uh, resources to sort of show the school how interested you are in the school, which is one of the factors they take into account, even, God forbid, using legacy preferences to give your kid an advantage. So you know, the lengths that other people go to to kind of get their own kid in, some of which are fairer than others, I think all these people did was take that to a, to a natural extension. And that's because of two things. One, college admissions has become this huge bottleneck in the American opportunity structure. Post-secondary education, colleges is really where the rubber hits the road. That's where the U.S. class system reveals itself, right? Mm-hmm. Less so in Cato, but that's where you can see it. And you just look at the numbers. You know? Most of the institutions involved in the scandal take more kids from the top 1% of the distribution than from the bottom 60% of the distribution. They're class reproduction machines. And so, of course, you want to get your kids into them. And you get their brand value as well and so on. So it's a huge bottleneck. And actually, it's not quite as important as people think it is, but it's also these rankings and the, and the, and the sense of just, you know, minute differences mattering hugely. It's really, it's infected the American upper middle class, I would say, this college race. Um, that's one thing. And the second thing is, it's a game. It's so complicated. It's so opaque. It's so open to abuse that if you create a complex, uh, difficult to understand game around college admissions, and of course, some people, everyone will game it, and then some people will cheat it. And I think to some, to some extent, what we've done is we've become accustomed to the idea that these college places are for sale, one way or the other, whether you're buying extra prep, or you're buying through donations, or you're buying a plane ticket to go visit it, or you're you know, buying it through. And as soon as you've accepted that to some extent they're for sale, should it be any surprise that some people try to steal it? Because we've commoditized it. And we've made it so unmeritocratic that in some ways you can't sort of blame these parents for just going the extra, the extra mile. To be clear, they're criminals, could, should go to jail, but they, their behavior is explicable in the light of the system we've created. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. So not to put you on the spot, but this raises the question of how should we and how will you address the game of college admission for your own kids at the same time trying to play it fair and giving them every chance they should have? I've cheated. So my first two have gone to college in the UK, which has just a, <laughs> just a straightforward, which is a straightforward uh, admissions procedure. It's very simple. You get these grades, you get in. You don't, you don't. We don't care about anything else. We don't, we don't want an essay. We don't want to know whether you played lacrosse. We don't care where you, whether your mum came here. We just don't care. The form, it's like a two-page form in or out. And so that's but the third. My youngest will is actually going to, he's a junior now, a rising senior, is going to apply to the US system. So I am going through that. I think it's just a question then of kind of where do you draw the line? And there is the line that I try to articulate in my book is between wanting your kids to succeed in the meritocracy of the labor market by just giving them as much skill as possible, right? So does that mean if they're struggling in a particular subject, you get them extra help if you can afford it? Yes. Do you pay for kind of online SAT prep courses? Yes. Do your kids actually use them? No, in my case. <laughs> was, was it a waste of money? Yes. But, 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 it's, but it's there. And, and actually, so, but then there's another, there's another set of plans. And I've made this very clear to my kids. In fact, I've said it publicly to one of them. I will never help you get an internship. I will never help you get a job. 
I will never help you get a college place and neither your mother or I will ever do that. She used legacy preferences. She went to US college. I know lots of people that could probably help in this kind of world, but I will never do that because that displaces somebody else who would have otherwise gotten it. Now, you may well get it anyway, just because you've, you've had so many advantages. The thing is that the kids who we're talking about have so many advantages already. You know, is, is he being a kind of good, good example? But my kid's the same. That actually to say on top of all these other advantages, we're also going to rig the system in their favor is, in my view, rubbing salt in the wound, right? It's not as if they weren't going to succeed anyway, to some extent or other. So what it means is that maybe they're going to go to your excellent public four-year university rather than an Ivy League. Well, boo-hoo, you know, they're going to be fine. And what that means is that the kid who was otherwise going to get to the Ivy League, who your kid displaced, does get to go. And that's net good for society. So there are some remedies that are being made by the institutions involved. For example, the college board who administers the SAT is introducing an adversity score. What do you think of those efforts? Yeah, well, they, they don't call it the adversity score, actually. That's what it's been labeled. But, um, oh. <laughs> uh, but, but it doesn't matter. Uh, everyone else does. It's too late. Well, I actually think that those efforts are positively uh, inclined. I think that the, the intent is good because what the intent is, the intent is to say something very straightforward. It's not to lower standards. It is to say that if my kid from upper middle class, Bethesda Chevy Chase, professional, highly educated parents gets 1,200 on his SAT, and then a kid from Southeast DC from a very difficult background who's attending an under-resourced, poor quality public school gets an 1,100 on their SAT, I put it to you that that kid is every bit as bright as my kid, probably more, right? Maybe... A thousand. We don't know. That's an, it becomes an empirical question. But I think the common sense idea that your SAT score is not some uh, measure of your ability that's in a vacuum from the context within which you got it is just common sense. And so for colleges to take into account the sorts of hurdles that someone's had to overcome, the background they come from, as they consider their admissions, is sensible. What the score does, what the adversity score does, is just make that a bit more empirical. And it makes it easier for admissions officers. It just creates a perfectly, I've looked at it pretty hard, it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable measure of people's background. And you just sort of say, okay, a poor kid with a lower SAT score is about the same as a richer kid with a higher SAT score. Now, cue outrage from rich parents, independent schools, etc., because... They will say, oh, that's not fair. You, you know, it's not, you're not, you're rigging. I would say you're leveling the playing field, not making it not level. So devil's advocate, because the upper middle class really need to be defended. So here I am to be their superhero. Yeah. Let's assume that all that is, is taken into consideration and that that admissions officer who is evaluating Izzy and my son in a few years assumes that because they went to certain schools and we live in a certain zip code, that they have received every advantage. Does that not necessitate me to provide those advantages just for them to be evaluated on an apples-to-apples basis? Well, I think that that's actually a really interesting question because an unintended consequence of this could be to escalate the arms race that you already see in the upper middle class. So if you're going to get the sense that those of us who might be, some of us might be trying to be a little bit more relaxed about this, will suddenly be like, hold on, I thought I could be more relaxed about it because I thought I was competing against the national distribution. If I'm actually competing against my local distribution, then, oh no, I will have to do all those things my, my neighbor is doing. So I can see how that could be an unintended consequence, but I'll say two things that make me less worried about that than perhaps you are. One, that's already happening. <laughs> yes. it's, really, it's really difficult for me to imagine how the arms race could heat up much more, certainly in upper middle class uh, neighborhoods. And two, even if it did a little bit, it would be a price worth paying if colleges use that score to really really radically change the way they think about admissions. You know, the truth is that the highly selective institutions of the US, they just serve upper middle class kids. 
that, that's who that's who they serve, and, and that's not sustainable. I proposed that that unintended consequence on Facebook, and one of my friends from Facebook, corporate Facebook, Doug Stotland, who lives in Palo Alto, said uh, there's no way it could get any any more intense here in Palo Alto than it is already. And I was like, okay, fair point. I was just trying to just trying to be provocative a little bit and see what. So you know, in what you're doing, you you are slaying a lot of sacred cows here, and you know, the obvious question is, okay, let's just say you're right. So then, what do we do? How do we f- go about fixing these problems? And in some of the solutions you you propose these are sacred cows that need to be slaughtered to level the playing field can you walk us through a few of these yeah so i just kind of try and divide them up into the things that we can do or the mm-hmm. things that we're kind of you know in that we're engaged in ourselves and then and then the kind of public policy solutions so broadly try, trying to stop this rigging of the system this opportunity hoarding and what can we do around that and then some more positive steps we can take individually and then some public policy stuff but actually can kind of start the conversation with what we can do with a quote from a philosopher jerry cohen who says that social justice is found in the thick of daily life. It's found in our own institutions. It's found kind of where we are. And I think there's a tendency among, perhaps particularly among liberal, progressive-minded, upper-middle-class Americans to sort of subcontract their liberalism to distant institutions. And that the closer the issue gets to home, the more their liberalism seems to evaporate. And so they'll be super liberal about what's happening in Syria, pretty liberal about what's happening nationally, pretty liberal about what's happening in the state, kind of liberal about the school district, but very illiberal when it comes to their own neighborhood, their own school. Uh, and I've really noticed that, uh, that there's a kind of linear relationship there. And it does mean we do have to kind of start where we are. So what does you know, the sorts of things we should be opposing are uh, legacy preferences in, in college admissions. They have to go. They will go. There's no question about that. And those of us in a position to do anything about it should just refuse to engage in that practice, encourage our kids to do the same. Don't give a single dollar to your college unless they get rid of at least until we get rid of legacy preferences. Even better, give the money to the local community college that doesn't have, that has barely a dime rather than to the expensive colleges most people kind of went to. We've got to radically change the way we allocate internships. Half of internships are unpaid. They're very important stepping stones to many, many uh, labor market institutions now. It's true in media, think tanks, journalism, um, advertising, finance, etc. And about half of them are, are given out on the basis of who you know. Uh, so that uh, you know, we have to stop using nepotistic networks to um, hand out all of those sorts of uh, opportunities. And then we also have to really think hard about the way that we're zoning our neighborhoods. And we all need to become NIMBYs rather than NIMBYs and think about the way the housing market works against lower income people because housing in the U.S. is a mess and it's actually perpetuating inequalities. And you'll get people who are like screamingly liberal on other issues who then turn up to housing board meetings and oppose the creation of more affordable housing anywhere near their neighborhood. Can you talk a little bit more about zoning and how that really affects? I mean, I get the fact that if I'm going to go to a public school, I'm, I'm going to want to live where the best public school is. And that's generally where the most affluent neighborhoods are. Yeah. Is that the number one thing that you're talking about with zoning? Well, it's really, it's actually the way that different systems combine here. If you have uh, a schooling system that's mostly geographically based, and then you have local zoning regulations, and then you have a tax system that encourages home ownership, especially for the wealthiest, then you've created an almost perfect storm because it allows me to buy an expensive house in Chevy Chase, very close to Bethesda Chevy Chase High School, um, where my kids can go to school, which is an excellent kind of public high school. It's a perfect system. And by the way, the federal government then gives me a massive tax deduction for doing that. 
the only thing that could ruin that is if lots of lower income people moved in or near my neighborhood. But fortunately, my local government allows me to prevent that happening through zoning laws and usually just by keeping the existing zoning laws in place and resisting any changes. And I can make up some environmental stuff or some BS about parking or shade or something like that to just sort of hide the fact that I'm really just kind of looking after my own. And I know I sound like I'm belittling it. I understand these these are challenges. And But at the margins, unless you're willing to loosen up our housing market a little bit, then it just continues to exclude. Exclude people from these neighborhoods and from these schools. And that's a form of hoarding. Um, and so we have to be very careful about the way that we rig the housing market in a way that allows us to hoard both the financial but also the social and educational opportunities that we want for our kids rather than sharing them a bit more broadly by somewhat loosening and the housing market. So I think in those three areas, at the very least, college admissions and legacies, uh, the way we do internships in our own institutions and elsewhere, and in the way we zone our neighborhoods, we can all make a difference. And those are all on the kind of rigging, unrigging the market side. And then there's a whole bunch of other policies which are really just about um, leveling the playing field around training and education, which we could get into. Can you talk for a moment about the detrimental effects of 529 plans and the mortgage tax interest deduction? The mortgage yeah. interest tax deduction. Yeah, so the one of the peculiar things about the US, by most other countries, it does a lot of its social policy through its tax code rather than directly. So that's true not only of things like mortgage interest deduction and 529 savings accounts, but also and income tax credit, childcare tax credits, and so on. So it's it's a feature of the US that it does that. And two of the features that stand out are, are the ones you've mentioned, mortgage interest deduction and 529 college savings accounts. Almost all of the value of those goes to people in the top 20% of the distribution. And that's for good reason. It's because the people in the top 20% distribution buy expensive houses and save for their kids' college. They have the money to buy expensive houses and their money to save for their kids' college expenses. And so they're the highly regressive elements of the tax code. Um, and they also don't really change behavior very much. They don't really encourage home ownership. They just encourage people to buy more expensive houses. And they don't really encourage college savings. They just have people put their college savings into those 529 accounts. So they're really just giveaways to the upper middle class. But the upper middle class have now come to feel quite entitled to those benefits. Um, they're effectively welfare for the affluent. And yet, if you try and take it away, they have a very, very violent reaction. So these are some things that people hold quite dear in the United States. You're saying some things that a lot of people would find to be quite unpopular. Are you are you liked by your peers and neighbors? Um, are your positions liked by your peers and neighbors? I, well, you know, it's funny you mention that, but none of my neighbors or friends have invited me in to talk to them since roughly <laughs> the time my book came out. So I can't answer your question because I haven't spoken. I, they seem to have gone all quiet on me. I think what's most interesting about this is, yes, these are kind of unpopular, unpopular views in many cases. Um, but what I've discovered is that very often some of the views and positions people take on this, they, they're just taking them without necessarily having thought that hard about them. In that sense, they're not to be blamed for them. And so, of course, you'd get your kid in using legacies. And of course, you don't want lots of you know, low-income housing up the road and so on. But then if you say, oh, hold on, let's just walk that through, then you can at least have a conversation about it. What I find most interesting, though, is that quite often it's the sort of free market conservatives um, who are most pro it because they're more in favor of freer housing markets, they tend to be more meritocratic. And it's, it's a very often it's kind of progressives and kind of liberals who've got themselves tied up in a knot about this. And I think it's kind of, they kind of almost feel a cognitive dissonance. I think at some level they kind of know that some of what they're doing is contributing to the very inequality that they rail about. So, you know, they'll be tutting over inequality as they sit in the car outside the house where their child is having their SAT prep as they read the New York Times editorial. You know, that's kind of the, 
picture you have in your mind. They've got they've got signs outside their front door saying hate has no home here, everyone's welcome, but then they turn yes. up and oppose zoning. And so there is this kind of and I do think at some level quite a lot of people have that dissonance. And in fact, one of my colleagues at EJ Dion, who writes for the Post, um, is a colleague here at Brippings, he said to me, he said, Yeah, he said, I've come to realize that I spend all day declaiming against inequality and then every evening and weekend adding to it. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, we, we uh, our son has a summer birthday, and so we did the math on holding him back when he was in pre-K. And I was thinking to myself, well, on the macro level, I don't really like this policy, but I don't give a shit about macro issues when I'm dealing with my own child. I'm thinking about his welfare and his welfare only. Yeah, and I, the, the difficulty is, look, the, the human human nature is to just want absolutely the best for your kid, right? You just want, and, and that's not, and that's A, it's human nature, and B, it's good human nature, right? Just, let's be clear, that is a great instinct. Um, and in, in no way should this be seen as an argument against that. It's a, it's a good. But there are other values and there are other goods. And, and so the really difficult question is, how do we collectively decide where the line is between the natural desire of parents to want the best for their kids and our collective desire to have a fair society? So yes, you're holding your kid back, etc. But I don't, I don't suspect you're going to bribe the teacher to get them into a better math class. I don't expect you're going to kind of bribe a coach to get me. I don't expect you're going to cheat. I don't expect you're going to do that. I expect you're going to. And so actually there are limits, right? And so what's the limit? And the limit tends to be agreed through social norms. It tends to be agreed through, you know, what is acceptable and unacceptable. And I use the example of legacy preferences as one where totally acceptable in the UK in the 19th century became unacceptable in the middle of the 20th century. Totally unacceptable now. Just uh, it may be horrific. You'd never get invited to a dinner party again if you were caught trying to trade on your position to get your kid into college in the UK. It was unacceptable in the US in the 19th century, became acceptable as a way to keep Jews out of Ivy League, Ivy League colleges, and now is seen as perfectly acceptable by the most liberal people I know. And so social norms do change as to what's, where the line is. And the goal here is to try and shift the line in a direction which is somewhat fairer, even if it costs some of us in the short term a little bit of advantage and it costs our kids a little bit of advantage too. It, we will have to pay a price, but it'll be a small price. And if we're not willing to pay any price at all, then at the very least, we should stop going on about how terrible inequality is and accept the fact that we are selfish, Darwinian, Hayekian, individualists, maximizing our own utility and our own kids' utility up to the limit of the law. Only the law will stop us. And I don't think that's a very good society. Thanks. Hang on one second. Hey, buddy, come here for a second. My son just walked in. Oh, okay. This, is, this was not planned. This was, well, you can say hello to Dr. Reeves and then head back inside. I'm doing an interview. Hello. Hey, Just how are you? Us. We're working hard to get him a great future. We Who are you? Back. I'll come, come down and talk to you in just a few. Okay. Okay, love you, buddy. See you in a sec. Okay, you're going to go and have talk to him about the fact that you're not going to do everything in your power to help him anymore because you've read Dream Horse. <laughs> That's, uh, I'm going I'm to consider while I'm doing everything I possibly can for him, I'm going to have a guilty conscience and, and we'll also mentor another child in the process. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's quite, that's actually one, I have a friend down in Charlotte who does that. Um, he now says that for everything he does, you know, if he, if he gets a tutor for his kid, he tries to get a tutor for his mentee, you know, and actually I know some school PCAs now, I'm trying to get mine to do this, it's split their proceeds with another school that's kind of, you know, hard up and so on. And so I think trying to find ways to, to make it, you know, to just sort of add on rather than take away is a useful. I will once again advocate for our number one nonprofit in this house, and that is yearup.org, which is a job training program for urban young adults. And we've found great satisfaction in being a part of that organization, feeling like we're actually making a difference in giving these disadvantaged young adults a, a brighter future. 
So, oh, good, so good, good. that's really good. And can I give you a, a practical suggestion as well? Yes, Maybe sure. Because so, we talked about mortgage interest deduction 529. And I just want to be clear, I take my mortgage interest deduction <laughs> and, I and, I, and, and I take the 529 I'm allowed in Maryland because frankly, it's, it's sort of, it feels unpatriotic and weird not to take every tax deduction that's available to you. And then plus you'd have nothing to talk about over dinner because everyone talks relentlessly for about three months about did you know you can get a tax deduction for this? And did you know it's like a game that Americans play every year? But it's actually genuinely quite hard not to take that money. So I do take that money, but then I calculate exactly how much it was worth to me and then give it away. And I give all of the 529 benefits to a charity um, called Rise in DC that helps kids to make the transition from high school to college. And I give all of my all of the value of my mortgage interest deduction to some housing charities, including the Yimby movement, who seek to try and change that. So I just pass all the money through. Then then the question is, do I claim a charitable tax deduction on the claim of that? That's for another podcast. It's quite circular. Yeah. Okay, while we're talking about awkward uh, topics to talk about at dinner, we have a little skit we've prepared for you, and it's called Richard Downer. And you say in your book that you've ruined more than a few dinner parties discussing your work with your upper middle class friends. So this is a segment, complete ripoff of Debbie Downer from Saturday Night Live, as complete by Rachel Dratch, Dartmouth alum, by the way. We're going to read through this, and I'll try to get the sound effects to work. Okay, so here we are at dinner, and I'm a guest with you at the dinner table. And I say... This custard sure is delicious, and it has 60% reduced fat. Did you know that 60% of births to single women under age 30 are unplanned? It's another fun dinner party with Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution. Here he is, another guest at the table says, I'd give anything for this recipe. And Richard says, Would you give up on the notion that America is a meritocracy and admit that your financial status says more about your parents and it says about your personal accomplishments. The next guest says, I really loved Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. You want another inconvenient truth? We are all, you included, complicit in a class system that is methodically suppressing the poor in service of our own advantages. And that's what it's like to be at a dinner party with Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution. I'm just can, waiting. The invitations are going to come flooding in now after the show. I can just feel it. You can, use, you can use that in the Brookings Institution talent show that's coming up this holiday season. You, you, um, could, do, you could do a competition and you could say first prize, one dinner with Richard Reeves. Second prize, two dinners. <laughs> and so on. And so on. <laughs> um, so let's talk, let's talk about a couple more things that I want to go off topic and I'll let you go. So specifically, you've made some recommendations in addition to eliminating things like 529s. Uh, you talked about birth control and what we might be able to do. That's something that I think a lot more people will agree on and shake their heads when, when you talk about it. Tell, us, tell me more about that. Yeah, so and here I just want to give a shout out to my colleague Isabel Sawhill, who's written a lot on this and has a new paper actually just recently published by Brookings. Uh, and it speaks again to this issue of like helping kids get the best start in life and, and do as well as they can in life. And one of the things that really interrupts kids' starts in life is if they are born into an unstable kind of family situation. And parents don't, it's not something people choose. Um, it's very often something just happens. Um, but one of the things that influences it is access to effective forms of family planning uh, and to contraception. And that's obviously you know, a very live issue, particularly in the US and particularly right now. But we see huge gaps in the chances of having a kid uh, accidentally by class background or by education. Um, it's something that upper middle class parents are very careful about with their own kids and very careful about their own lives. And they have access to great, great health care. And so if you're looking for something and great fam- and great effective forms of family planning, 
And so if you're really looking for something that will incredibly effectively help people and women especially keep control of their own lives and make their own decisions, decide who they want to be, then access to effective contraception is really way, way top of the list. But there are many parts of the country where it's hard. The most effective forms of it are expensive. They don't, can't necessarily afford it. And despite all the advantages of the Affordable Care Act, we're still a long way from having universal access to universally effective contraception. That's just, uh, I think, just an, uh, a completely avoidable problem. You say there's not money for it, yet there's a massive ROI for every dollar invested in those kinds of programs. Yeah, there is. So it's hard to find anything that has a kind of similar level of ROI. Um, so I think the economics are straightforward. But what concerns me much more than just the economics, actually, is the way that kids come into the world. If we're thinking about their trajectories through lives, actually being born to parents who are ready for you, who wanted you, who planned for you, etc. That's a different world to being born into an environment where it's like, oh, didn't really mean that. Oh, we'll make a go of it and so on. Um, and that's just something that's, you know, that's it's always going to happen to some extent. But the effectiveness um, of family planning now, especially kind of for various forms of contraception, they're just so, so great that actually making those forms kind of more widely available. And there are plenty of studies now, which Bell Sawhill, my colleague, has kind of summarized in this new report, which just show really dramatic, uh, dramatic effects. And so, for example, the state of Delaware just made contraception much more widely available over the last few years. Uh, a huge drop in unintended pregnancy rates in Delaware and a drop of one third in abortion rates in Delaware over the course of two or three years. And so, you know, these are huge effects. And all that happened was that they just made the contraception more available and trained particular clinicians on how to use it and how to talk to patients about it. And so and this is stuff that those of us who are in, I think, more advantaged um, circumstances kind of take for granted, but it's quite hard for many others to access this kind of service. And so it's actually, I think, genu you know, borderline criminal that it's um, not, not easier for lower income Americans, especially lower income Americans, to access high quality family health care. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that. Uh, I'd like to just ask a little bit more personal question about your work. How did you become uh, a professional scholar? Well, I could have bounced around uh, various other professions and failed at all of them. So the, 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 the positive spin is that I'm multidisciplinary. And so I have a background in journalism, politics, academia, and think tanks. That's the, you know, and so I almost unique, uh, uniquely combine this multidisciplinary uh, kind of experience. The truth is that I tried all those things and wasn't good enough at any of them. And so tried something else. And I'm going to continue to do that. I've been at Brookings for six years. I haven't been rumbled yet. Uh, so maybe I can continue to do it. But I think the, the truth is that I, there is a kind of, there's a theme that runs through all of it, I was, you know, through my journalism and my work in a couple of governments in the UK, as well as academia and a few think tanks. And, and really social mobility and inequality has been a kind of driving theme. But even kind of behind that, I think this sense, one of the things that I grew up with and have never lost is a real anger at the sense that anybody's path through life um, should be blocked by circumstances or factors that are outside of their own control. You know, I think that's one of the things that makes you a true kind of egalitarian, and I would say kind of liberal egalitarian, and it means you support equal rights of all kinds and kind of so on. But it also means that you really get troubled by the fact that, you know, someone who's born into a certain circumstance um, is, if not fated, then much more at higher risk of remaining in those circumstances. So it's a deeply kind of a liberal and non-egalitarian society. So where that comes from is another, is another matter, but it's really animated um, all of my work. I'm John Stuart Mill's biographer, for example, and why would you spend five years writing a biography of a liberal, no, dead 19th century liberal philosopher? And it's because he spoke very clearly about this need for people to, not, to have as few obstacles in their path as possible. And so clearing those obstacles away um, is really uh, been the thing that's animated my work in all those different areas.
So what do you do every day to fulfill that mission? Well, besides uh, doing hilarious podcasts with completely contrived humor bits. <laughs> well, well, they won't sound contrived once you've cleaned it up in the edit. Well, that's right. We're going to make me sound a lot, a lot smarter and you not quite as insightful in post. Well, that wouldn't be the first time. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, it's, it's trying to do kind of good quality scholarship, try and cross lines um, and try and project it to as wide an audience as possible. And I would say that um, I try to do work in spaces that at least some of the time makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, so this is really difficult. So I'm attracted to the issues where they're really difficult empirical issues, but also moral issues, ethical issues at stake as well. So issues around family structure, and we've already talked a bit about family planning, but also these opportunity hoarding mechanisms. And those, are, those are really different. Where's the line between wanting to do the best for your kids and creating an unfair class-bound society? Those are incredibly difficult questions, and they're very uncomfortable. Like they're personally uncomfortable. So I'll, you know, I'm accused of being a hypocrite all the time. And there's a really, you know, and I'm really trying not to. Put, I'm struggling through this like everybody else. But it seems to me that it's too easy to avoid those uncomfortable areas. It's too easy to just kind of look away or stay away professionally. You know, professionally, why go into areas that are going to upset so many people? Why take positions that one day upset the left and another day upset the right? And it feels to me that's, that's probably where the work is. You know, it's a bit like, um, I've never thought of this analogy before, it's a bit like exercising. You know, if it's not hurting a little bit, you're probably not doing it properly. And I think that's true of scholarship as well. Do you get satisfaction, some degree of satisfaction out of tweaking people's noses about things that... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weird mixture of a... I, I would describe myself as the worst of all things, a thin-skinned provocateur. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can relate to that. I, just, I, yeah, just, I, I, am, I do have a provocative... You know, I, do, I, I do think it's important, and I try to do this in my work, to be pretty you know, straightforward in, in the knowledge that that will be uncomfortable. Um, but then I, you know, then I get a bit upset when people get upset, even though that's what I set out to do. So uh, what I try to do is just to have the presumption of goodwill. Um, so even when I think, you know, people are doing things that are adding to it, I, I think one of the problems it, we've got right now is that you just categorize certain people as bad or good and kind of so on. I think there are good and bad things that we do and there are good and bad ideas, but there aren't good and bad people really. And so um, I try to kind of avoid that, uh, that trap to fall into it and, um, and, and treat everybody with respect and to listen um, rather than just you know, fall into the polemicist trap of saying, let me tell you the 11 reasons why you're wrong. Because actually, these, these are very difficult issues and anybody who claims to have easy answers is either a liar or a fool or both. What's the most interesting you, you've read recently? What is the most interesting thing I've read recently? Do you mean book length or well, uh, academic well, paper? Well, you, or? Mentioned, you mentioned some great work by your colleagues that you're doing, but you know anything else that you would steer our listeners toward to uh, broaden their knowledge of what you've been working on or anything else yeah. that you're finding interesting? Yeah, yeah, it's such a, a long list of things. And actually, I'm going to choose one that's probably somewhat away from my immediate day job. But Adam Gopnik has a new book out. Uh, about the future of liberalism. Gopnik is a, a New Yorker writer. And his book it actually is it, a perfect example of good liberal argument because he takes the left and the right on a kind of equal measure after having put the very, very best arguments that they can, that they can possibly muster. It's called A Thousand Small Sanities, I think. And it's a really brilliant defense of liberalism properly defined. And that's a very rare thing to find. And so it's a great read because Gopnik's a great writer and I think it's a much needed book. And it's, it has the virtue of not being sort of too academic. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way at all. He's a, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. But, but actually what I think liberals need right now, liberals of that me, is they don't need a philosophy lecture. They need a rallying cry. And Gopnik reminds us why liberalism is a good thing. So is part of your mission to get 
us to be more honest with ourselves in the world that we live in? Yeah, I think that we need to look a bit harder in the mirror and look at what we're doing and what we're not doing. And I don't mean that in a way to suddenly come down on ourselves, say everything we're doing is terrible, but just to be more intentional and more thoughtful about what we're doing and not doing to kind of create a fair and a better society and recognize that although we will always see ourselves, I hope, as part of the solution to society's, to society's difficulties, just occasionally we might have to admit that we're also part of the problem and that advertently or inadvertently we're contributing to institutions and structures and social norms that are actually acting against the kind of society that deep down we know we want to live in. And then be honest enough to recognize that that's a difficult thing because it's going to require us to give some things up. It's going to create some dissonance. It's going to, you know, create some ambiguity in, in our lives. And in the end, you know, I prefer the person who just straightforwardly says to me, yeah, I know that what I'm doing is unfair and it won't create a better society. I'm well aware of that, but I've done the trade-off and I'm still doing it because at least they're aware that there's a moral calculus there than the person who somehow manages to convince themselves that even though they're cheating and rigging the system in some way, that they're still, they're still not doing anything wrong. Um, it seems to me the first step to trying to do right is to recognize when you're doing wrong. And I've noticed that a lot of upper middle class Americans, are well educated and brilliant as they are, have managed to convince themselves that they're effectively blameless in the question of inequality. And that's just empirically not true. And until they recognize that they're partly complicit, it seems to me that they won't be the kind of army that we need them to be to really try and bring about the kind of progressive changes that we need to bring about a society that they profess to, to want and think that they do actually really want deep down, but have yet to come to terms with the fact that's going to require some sacrifices on their part. And I do not underestimate what a difficult thing that uh, is to ask. Um, and I don't even know some, some days whether I can ask it of myself, but I do think we have to at least pay ourselves the courtesy and others the courtesy of asking the question honestly and answering it as honestly as we can. That's exactly how I felt when I read the Guardian's report about recycling and how it doesn't work. <laughs> I have yet another reality to deal with and, and guilt to be born for the rest of my adult life. <laughs> there was you thinking you were saving the planet every time you recycled. Oh, man, I really felt, I really felt that dissonance. I, I was like, oh, this isn't working. This is bad news. No, dis dissonance is good. Dissonance is the first step to, to, to real, real progress, I think. We just need to embrace dissonance. Yeah, it's easier to, to ignore it, I think. And I think that's one of the things that's led to uh, so many of the issues we're dealing with as a society. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't address? No, that was very comprehensive and really well done, I have to say. Thank you. And where can our leaders, <laughs> our leaders, where can President Trump find out more about you? Now, where can our listeners find out more about your work? They can look on the Brookings website uh, under my scholar page, or I have my own uh, modest website, richardvreeves.com. Great. We'll put links to that in the show notes. Richard Reeves, thank you very much for your work, and thank you for joining us on Crazy Money. Cool. Thank you for having me. Great conversation. So that's my conversation with Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution. Richard, thank you for your time. Thank you for your openness and playing along during the interactive portions of the interview. I really enjoyed that conversation. His book made me think, and I learned a lot from our conversation. I hope you did too. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoy what we're up to here at Crazy Money Podcast, I sure would appreciate it if you would share this interview, this episode, or past episodes that you've enjoyed with a friend who you think would like them. Also, if you haven't done so already, please take a few minutes to leave us a rating and a review on your podcast application of choice. Most importantly, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Go make that happen. Goodbye.